All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 54, and Jason and I are going to address modern UFOs, ufology. Um, for those who have followed, I don't know how many episodes ago, it was way back when we began to out how many sci-fi writers, sci-fi novel writers, comic book writers, this type of thing, were inventing so many of the things in our world, like nukes, like religions in the case of L. Ron Hubbard, like satellites, um, so many things we can attribute to being invented by sci-fi writers. Uh, Ufology is really no different. Um, If I was to ask the average person, where did the idea of gray aliens come from? They might be surprised to learn that it's our old friend H.G. Wells who first put gray aliens, apparently, on the world consciousness. Uh, I'm going to read you a little excerpt here uh, that anyone can look up. Uh, I think part of this is carried in Wikipedia of all places. Wiki say anything, but here we go. In in an 1893 article, Man of the Year Million, well-known author H.G. Wells had envisioned the possibility of humanity transformed into a race of gray-skinned beings who were perhaps one meter tall with big heads, large oval eyes, pitch black eyes, and in his 1901 book, The First Men in the Moon, Wells described selenites, natives of the moon, as having gray skin, big heads, large black eyes. He also briefly describes aliens resembling greys brought down to Earth as food for Martians, who were the antagonist characters for his later 1898 novel, War of the Worlds. So you can see the original thread here of the description of gray aliens being introduced. There were even, apparently, uh, little illustrations done for the young, for kids, to see what these little aliens might look like. But you can see the thread going right through to his ideas about the moon, the idea that there are Martians on Mars, uh, all the way up into War on the Worlds, which has been so prominently portrayed by Orson Welles, which we cover in this episode, and Hollywood later in a Tom Cruise movie. But it, but there's more. Another sci-fi novelist, um, well, maybe I should just call him a novelist, although I think he should be called a sci-fi novelist, in 1933, of course, a Swedish novelist named Gustav Sandgren um, came up with the idea or furthered the idea of uh, the greys and uh, there's a brief description here in, in which he describes a race of extraterrestrials um, resembling the human race they were short, shorter than the average Japanese their heads were big and bald, strong square foreheads. it goes on, weak chins, weak noses big black eyes uh, they wear soft grey fabric um, so you can see where the thread of Greys begins, and we address this in depth, because whenever you see sci-fi writers, you should be thinking, what's going on here, shouldn't you? Um, anyhow, let's talk a minute about reptilians, because that is such a popular thing on YouTube. Uh, so many videos where people supposedly have slit eyes, um, and I would point out, at one time I was looking at this idea and actually found the original clay. I think it was Britney Spears or one of the one of the singer girls, the little pop singer girls, uh, with a very convincing slit eye actually dilating and doing other things. But the original clip was shown. So clearly people with some software skills had gone at it to create the slit eye image that is being passed off as reptilians all over the world. But where did that idea come from? Does anyone know where the reptilian idea originated? Well, it's credited to a professor of political science named Michael Barkin from Syracuse University. But where this idea was lifted from, believe it or not, was Conan the Barbarian. 
So the original idea of uh, in 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 modern culture, I should say, because there are other things like the emerald tablets and other things that that do reference these ideas or in a way these kinds of ideas. But um, there it is, man. Whenever you can track something back to a sci-fi writer, and in the Tavistock Institute episode we did, we showed that many of these sci-fi writers, um, not two of the ones I mentioned here, but one, um, hovered around the Tavistock Institute, um, which also sets aside Tavistock Institute's documented claim that they are responsible for the modern cultural alien agenda. Anyhow, this is a very interesting episode. Um, I imagine there will be a lot of people out there that get kind of upset about some of the things we're saying, but I will reiterate for probably the fifth time in this episode, I cannot tell you what living things may be in this universe if there is such a thing. Um, But I can address the social engineering absolutely because you can research it back to its roots. You can lay a timeline like Jason does in every show and we can watch the timeline develop. We can watch it go out into comic books. We can watch it go into Hollywood. We can watch it go all these places that further what is in the cultural consciousness of our world. And more so today, now that Hollywood is pretty much prominently the dream factory is in every country country prominently that has an internet connection for the most part um and in in even before this time hollywood had huge sway on countries that may have had not had so much direct contact but i mean we're at a point now where media saturation is universal in our world for the most part so let's jump into this episode and keep in mind what we're doing here is showing a way for anyone who wants to do research and look and challenge these kind of popular cultural ideas that don't seem to have any merit. They seem to be invented by sci-fi writers, by comic book writers. You know, after we did the nuclear nonsense episode last time around, I took the mercurial idea from alchemy, and I'm finding it everywhere. Uh, As an example, I think I talk a little bit about this in the show. Do you know the Silver Surfer is basically mercury? Mercury is a herald of the gods. Silver Surfer is a herald to a god called Galactus, who even has the little Mercury horns coming off the top of his thing. Silver Surfer is the color of Quicksilver, which is Mercury itself. These ideas and these constructs are literally littered throughout our culture and our way of life, to be frank about it. But anyhow, let's jump into episode 54. There it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 54. I have Jason Lingren with me, and we're going to talk about the modern construction of UFOs. Uh, And while I cannot tell you what beings or things there may be alive in this universe, if there is such a thing, uh, we can absolutely address the kind of ufological constructs that were manufactured uh, in, in an increasingly evident way. We see so many sci-fi writers through Hollywood and other ways and show them to be basically social engineering. And uh, for those who right out of the gate are getting a bit irked by what I'm saying, uh, I would like to point you back to the Tavistock episode where there's actually documentation of the Tavistock Institute claiming responsibility for the modern alien, alien agenda in the way we think about it. And again, It's okay if we don't see eye to eye. Everyone is perfectly entitled to have their point of view, but I am truly hoping the things that Jason and I point out here will at least get you to challenge some of what we consider to be modern constructs and ufology. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. Are you ready to board the spacecraft? 
Yeah, let's do it. Someone's got to. There's got to be a spacecraft someday, doesn't there? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we might get up there and find out there is no space in the way we think it's there, though. <laughs> Maybe they figured that part out and they have gills. Yeah, really. Creature from the Black Lagoon up there. Who knows? <laughs> um, um, anyhow, um, we've got a good list to get through. We're going to run a typical timeline, and we're going to address some of the things that really do have a major effect on the I guess we could say world consciousness in terms of television. Uh, even we're going to touch on some music ideas here, too, not to mention Hollywood and the usual players. And uh, again, I would point people to the Tavistock Institute episode on Crow Triple Seven Radio podcast. Um, you know, we dug up documentation that, and, and it wasn't just modern ufology, what they called taking responsibility for the modern alien agenda. Things like the World Wildlife Fund, um, the Green Movement, Greenpeace, all these things uh, are apparently tied to Tavistock. So don't be surprised as we get into the list. Anyhow, uh, go ahead. It's all you, Jason. All right. So we're going to start this whole thing off by saying we're not attacking anyone who's had a UFO encounter in the sense that you, you've seen things in the sky. Because uh, Crow has, Randy has, I have. Like, we've seen things that we don't know what they are. That's not what we're doing here. What we're talking about here is that the majority of the stuff that's out there, especially the uh, quote-unquote celebrities in the UFO community, it's probably just a money-making scheme, as, as you're going to see as we get into it, especially uh, towards the end when we start discussing specific figures. So I just want to put that out there right from the start, that we're not poo-pooing everyone who's seen things, because we all have. So that being said, the first thing we're going to touch on is the, the notion of ancient aliens or the ancient astronaut theory. This is the notion that the Earth had one or more highly technological alien species visiting and influencing humans and the dawn of civilization for many cultures. Prometheus Entertainment, aha, is the company behind the ancient aliens program that is the main contributor to uh, getting this information out there in recent years. They have a, a main figure for this show who is Giorgio Tsoukalos, and he's an interesting individual to say the least. Anyone who's seen this program or knows of Giorgio knows that he's just a very unique character, man. I'd like to point out right off the bat that he's got some kind of social engineering aspect just with him in the sense they're trying to paint people who are into this stuff as kind of nutsy because as you watch the progression as the show goes by, his hair starts getting crazier and crazier, and a program that's on... History Channel has major production, so it's intentional. There's no way it's not intentional, because he goes from looking like a pretty normal, you know, he's pretty young, I, th I think he's younger than me, in fact, and then by the end of it, he's looking like crazy dude with his hair sticking out all over the place, super moosed up, so, you know, what's your take on that, Crow? Well, I gotta say, I gotta agree with him, that's a pretty sweet hairdo that he evolved into, but also Mr. Sukalos has ties to the gentleman who wrote Chariots of the Gods, um, but I'm going to set all that aside. Um, well, I guess I'll, before I set that aside, I will point out to people who have not followed me regular that Prometheus Entertainment, Prometheus is basically just Lucifer encoded. And I have had direct contact with Prometheus as they have tried to not only acquire some of my moon footage uh, for something they were doing, but uh, wanted me wanted to talk to me about getting me involved in some no show they were doing, which I had zero interest in um, because I consider myself a serious researcher. But to take on the overarching idea of the Ancient Aliens television show, first thing we need to recognize, it's reaching 
millions of minds out there. Okay, this is a major information gateway. The cinemat cinematography for most of the show is off the charts good. Um, if you didn't believe one iota of you UFO or ufology or any any of the rest of it, you might watch that show simply to see places in the world in very incredibly well shot um, HD cinematography. But one of the main premises of the Ancient Alien show is that humans can't do a damn thing, that we have to explain all these things we see around us um, with some higher ancient being. Um, and it's nonsense. There is not a thing that has ever been on that show uh, that could not be attributed to human engine or ingenuity. Um, and I would further point out many of the places they go where there are ancient monuments and other things, these things are being challenged and rightly so in my view. Um, things like the pyramid, how old are they actually? Um, you know, you can you can any person listening to this can go look at what's been presented about Egypt. And here's an example. You will see things like an obelisk that looks like it's been carved with a laser. It is perfectly inset hieroglyphics. It looks like a computer-driven program did the carving on this obelisk. Then from the same period, we can see other hieroglyphics that look like some dude with a dull tool and palsy kind of scratched out some semblance of hieroglyphics in the same period. But even to go further, let's say that I built a stone house in the modern area, that I just built a house and it was made out of stone. Let's say that I went out in the world today to get the best pigment I could get my hands on, and I painted hieroglyphics or pictures or something inside this stone house. What do you suppose those pigments would look like in a 100 years? Even if they were, say, built in the desert, where there's not a lot of humidity or salt or other things. Um, we're told on so many occasions that these paintings that we're looking at that are vivid blues and vivid reds, they're thousands of years old. And for my part, I can't accept it. So as we see people challenging these ancient monuments and then we correlate back to what Ancient Aliens is telling us, I think that there's a lot to challenge there. And I think the basic premise of the show is nonsense to begin with. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. I mean, the guy, has, uh, George Sukulos, he's, he's become a total meme, like it's a big old joke. So tell me that's not social engineering when you, when you see him well, yeah. used over and over and over again uh, in, in a joking fashion, you know? Well, that, that's modern day television marketing, isn't it? You know, you need to have your main character. Um, so many shows rely on a, on a character setup. There's often a pretty girl to help drive that part in the demographic. And Giorgio is simply using marketing and techniques that have been used forever on television to get a fan base. And it was successful. As, as you said, that sweet, sweet hairdo is now a meme. It's even a bumper sticker that I've seen around. <laughs> and he uh, well, he has ties and other stuff, too. He was a television personality before uh, any of the Ancient Alien stuff. So, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. He's in the entertainment business, he, him and, and his producers, you know. Well, here's another thing that I noticed. I had seen, um, I think it was at my brother-in-law's house. I don't remember. I saw one of the, uh, like, it, there's some membership you can get into if you're an Ancient Aliens fan. And there's some publication that they have. I don't even remember what it's called. But uh, it was sitting on a table when I was visiting one day, and I looked at it, and they were asking people to write articles to submit for this publication um, that I think Giorgio Suclos is the uh, editor on. But one thing I noticed was they would not allow you to include any modern ufology or modern sightings. And I thought that's a curious thing. If you're making the claim that ancient astronauts basically did everything here – 
what would lead you to believe that they are not still here now in some way, shape or form, or that if people cited something, it couldn't relate to the very thing you're claiming about h and So the whole thing seemed it's very contrived, well put together, well shot, well marketed. But again, human beings can do some amazing things. And I have never seen anything presented on that show that could not be attributed to human ingenuity. But that really sets aside the fact that half the things they're looking at are supposed to be stone monuments that go back many thousands of years. And I don't think it's going to be too much longer before it is shown outright that many of these things are not nearly the age that, I mean, maybe even as, as, as close to us as the Middle Ages. And I'm not even kidding about that. So go ahead, Jason. Right. So take a look at that material, make of it as you will. We're going to move on to another figure who, who deals with the ancient past, and that's Zachariah Sitchin. Now, it, it's pretty well known that Zachariah Sitchin is, was, was he's, he's deceased now, was a high, uh, high-ranking Freemason. Numerous people with very good credentials in translating ancient languages like the Sumerian that he dealt with uh, point out in a whole bunch of places where Sitchin got it wrong. There's actually a website called um, com, if I remember correctly, and it would appear that a lot of the key points in the stories that he puts out that are supposed to be translations are just plain wrong. And and this is where the whole Nibiru Planet X things come from. And I know, Crow, you've dealt with this before. And, man, it, every time you look on YouTube, there's some other ding-dong out there touting about, look, Planet X has been spotted. Nibiru's coming to get us, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. It's not real. No, Planet X is so much nonsense, and anyone who actually wanted to dig into the roots of how long this has been around, where it came from, and all these other things would begin to get the picture. And, and you know, and I, in saying this, I am setting aside the statements and the research I have done that have led me to believe that not only is space misdescribed, it's possible that it's actually closer to some kind of liquid. Things that from what we call space do not come into our atmosphere. There's some kind of a hard, fast boundary there. If any of those things are correct, it would really be begin to show the idea of of orbital model planets and planet Nibiru as being completely nonsensical, made up of whole cloth. But to get back to Sitchin, in my younger years, I can't tell you how many Sitchin books I read, 10, maybe 12. I mean, I read some Sitchin books. But I have to credit Mr. Sitchin with actually snapping me out of the alien kind of nonsense that I can now see so clearly. Um, and again, I cannot tell you if there are other beings in a universe, if we have a universe. I can't tell you these things, but I can recognize social pro programming and constructs. And Mr. Sitchin helped me do this. As I began to get older and I went back to those books and I looked at them, I began to challenge them and break them down. So we're being t told that there's this ancient clay tablets that have a language called cuneiform on them. Basically, cuneiform looks like someone took a triangular pointed wedge, a reed or something, and pressed it into mud. Um, and the first thing I began to think about is, well, if we had Egyptian hieroglyphics, and they're actually pictograms, they're actually pictures of things in most hieroglyphics from supposed Egypt, and we had to wait until we got a Rosetta Stone to have the very same tale told in three or four languages, I think it's actually, um, to understand what those pictograms meant, how in the heck did anyone ever crack cuneiform? So as I began to look into this and hear the stories of how it was done and, and all the history that were given, 
I became very suspect of cuneiform itself. But then we are told by Sitchin himself, there are a handful of people in this world that can even deal with translating supposed cuneiform, and it's not a handful of people. It's more than that. It's just not very many. So then I began to look at the idea, is it even possible that this man translated this amazing tale from cuneiform and that we don't have people lining up at every university to learn how to translate cuneiform so they can get in on this amazing tale that's been told about how people came to be and all these other, you know, unknown histories of our world and none of it holds water. But as you get in to Sitchin, you begin to find things like he was a Mason and when you start to learn everything I've been talking about and you find out he's a Mason, you really have to begin to question the foundations of it all. For my money, Zachariah Sitchin is case and verse in putting out a story that puts out that fish hook of mystery that hooks the human mind. And the people that want to or need to believe in something will immediately gravitate to that and never challenge it. On the other hand, if you take the time to challenge it, I think most people will find exactly what I'm trying to point out here. But I don't know, Jason, I, I won't ramble on Sitchin too much longer here. Go ahead. Well, I have no doubt also that because he did books and lectures and radio shows and all that good stuff, he probably made a good bit of money off of it too. And just like we'll see with some of these other folks later on, the show. Well, there's another point that I forgot to mention there. As I was digging in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Sitchin never took the time to identify the tablets that he supposedly translated. There are other people out there, and I have seen the site you mentioned, uh, SitchinIsWrong.com, I think it's called. Uh, I hope we have that right. Um, that point out similar things. If there's these magical tablets with these incredible tales, which ones are they? You know, and that sets aside the whole problem with translating cuneiform, which I find suspicious in the first place. And then we have things like the Iraq War, where, you know, we're told that these antiquities are going to be guarded. What happens? Um, everything is robbed out of the museum. So seemingly things like what we were talking about here are some of the things that come up missing. It's almost like they're trying to co cover a, a nonsense story gone wrong or something, in my view. Yeah, who knows? It's, it's definitely very suspect. Yeah, same thing happens over and over. You know, it happened in Egypt. You know, I'm told now that in Egypt, that main uh, that main pink-looking uh, museum that has so many of the supposed ancient Egyptian artifacts, that you're not even allowed to take pictures in there anymore. It really seems like they have a lot to, to confess to, and they're doing everything they can, like having, you know, Arab Springs. And again, that museum gets robbed. It happens all the time, and it seems to me it is basically um, – evidence for lies being hidden away or covered. And what museum in this world can you not take pictures in? I mean, it's it's nonsensical. Anyhow, go ahead, bud. Right. So, folks, make of that what what you will. I know a lot of folks are really into the Sitchin stuff, but it uh, looks like Crow and I both agree uh, we're not buying. We're not drinking from that well. So up next, we have the War of the Worlds radio drama. Uh, this is an episode of the American Radio Drama Anthology series. The Mercury Theater on the Air. Dun, dun, dun. Ah. There it is, man. <laughs> the, alchemi the alchemical trinity being brought to bear on the world psyche. Sorry, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> it was performed as a Halloween episode of the series on October 30th, 1938, and aired over, are you waiting for it? It aired over the Columbia Broadcasting System Radio Network. You know this better <laughs> as CBS. And we do CBS. Go ahead, man. <laughs> Directed and narrated by actor and future filmmaker Orson Welles, the episode is an adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel, 
The War of the Worlds from 1898. The first two-thirds of the 60-minute broadcast were presented as a series of simulated news bulletins, which suggested to many listeners that an actual alien invasion by Martians was currently in progress. Compounding the issue was the fact that the Mercury Theater on the air was a sustaining show which means it ran without commercial breaks, and that added to the program's realism. Although there were sensationalist accounts in the press about a supposed panic in response to the broadcast, the precise extent of listener response has been debated. In the days following the adaptation, however, there was widespread outrage and panic by certain listeners who had believed the events described in the program were in fact real. The program's news bulletin format was described as cruelly deceptive by some newspapers and public figures, leading to an outcry against the perpetrators of the broadcast. Despite these complaints, the episode secured Wells' fame as a dramatist, and my goodness, did he go on to some serious success. Yeah, you think, man, he's like the ultimate skilled Hollywood insider, so much so that I guess one would have to wonder if he was born into the role that he uh, took up in his life. Uh, I think he's in his 20s when he pulls this off, but you mentioned that it's from an H.G. Wells novel. So here again, uh, we have the fingerprints of a sci-fi writer, and as people who listen to the intro of this episode will understand, H.G. Wells is credited with the early invention, the earliest known invention of the gray alien, the idea of what became gray aliens. But there's so many things in what you just said, Jason. I mean, we can't set aside the Mercury Theater. There's the alchemical encoding um, for the Trinity that shows up in so many uh, Masonic lodges around the world. But when you go back and you listen to excerpts of the original War of the Worlds that was broadcast on the radio, supposedly sustaining whatever that means, I guess they didn't need advertising money um, and they were just going to do a single shot, which of course helped the narrative that they were pushing. You can't get away from it really feels like the intention of that broadcast is to fool people. Uh, it really seems. And so then you need to begin to wonder if this really happened, if this is a true history of some sort, and it's not that far back. Um, so I guess we can assume it's quite probable that it happened. Um, there are probably people here today living that can remember this. Um, what was the intent here? Were they just seeing how many people they could fool into Martians coming to Earth? Or was it just fear porn? Or was it two or three pronged? Hard to know. But Few people remember that after this went down, supposedly there was congressional hearings. And this, again, shows the complicity of our government in such things, because if I remember correctly, and I didn't look it up before I sat down here, um, I don't think much of anything. There might have been some kind of a censure or something given to H.G. Wells, in other words, a slap on the wrist. And as he walked out the back door, a shake, shake on the hand saying, well done, buddy. Um, <laughs> you can see the nonsense of it all. But I mean, what's your take, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it. It's suspect that there were no commercial breaks. That that one really raised a flag to me. And I've listened to it. I don't know if you have or not, but I've listened to the whole uh, of the entirety of the program. And I could see why people would fall for it. Uh, people back then were different than they are now. You know, that's this was a more straightforward uh, generation of people. You know, they didn't have the constant bombardment of media that we have now where people today are highly desensitized to things. Back then, if they heard it, they kind of, took it as it was you know if it sounded like a news bulletin well by god it was a it was a news bulletin yeah and and you're absolutely right people were different back then i remember my grandparents when they were alive on both sides of the family they were very proud of this country when i was young um america was something that they took huge pride in they took pride in their work they respected and trusted their government. Um, you know, we've come a long ways down the road since those days, but we've also got to understand 
back in the day when they should, you know, did something like this, there was no way to review it in the way that we have now. So you basically were shown or or allowed to witness what you were allowed to witness. And that was all you got, man. So it's very easy to see how people in that age would have bought into this. I'm always impressed that they were able to pull these things off live, too. And, it, you know, they really didn't make that many mistakes. That's it was a craft that they performed and they performed it really well, you know. Yeah, they even had the Foley people in there, you know, doing the sound effects. I mean, there, there were some movies made about the supposed radio broadcast later where, you know, the aliens coming out of the ship and they're unscrewing these big mason jars, hint, 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 um, <laughs> to make the sound effect of, you know, the spaceship opening. So it, it was an art form. There's no doubt. You know, they were running live radio and they had the sound effects right there being uh, recorded live. But for my money, this is a real fingerprint of one of the foundational events we can point to that starts to really further the idea that space is what we've been told it is, planets are what we've been told they are, and by the way, quite possibly there's Martians on Mars and they could come eat us if they want. These kind of fear porn, foundational, ufological ideas. Absolutely, and if, if you have the attention span for it, Go listen to it. It is very interesting. Of course, extremely dated. I mean, you can hear just how different sociologically things were back then. I actually kind of enjoy some of the Orson Welles. Um, what was the character he played? I'm blanking on it. The, was it the Shadow? The, the Shadow. shadow that was it. Yeah, yeah, the Shadow. Yeah. yeah, a couple of years ago, I'd listened to a whole bunch of them, and several people played the Shadow, but uh, Orson Welles, I, everyone agrees, is absolutely the best. And just interesting to see how different things were back then. But anyway... Well, let, let, let's cap it off real quick, Jason. People need to keep in mind, this is the man who created Citizen Kane. Kane being the operative word for those with at least half an eye open, um, inserted so often into the encoded nonsense that we see, um, even affecting our biblical tales. But Citizen Kane is often voted the best movie of all time. And in my view, I've watched it. It's, it really is a good movie. Um, but it's almost like a poke in the eye to the sleeping masses. Because right out of the gate, they're showing, again, a young Orson Welles in his 20s playing the role of someone who inherits a newspaper. And what do they show the early newspapers early in the 20th century doing? Well, the same fear porn nonsense and false flag type events that we complain so much about now. In that construct, they're creating wars that don't exist. And when the country is called up, this tiny little paper saying, what the hell are you doing? There's no war here. Orson Welles, as you know, chief and editor of the paper, says, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, the paper printed that there's a war. I assure you there's a war on, you know, and he's poking you in the eye basically at a very early time in this country showing you what media is about. But anyhow, let's let's go ahead and get past that. Up next, we're going to touch on the Battle of Los Angeles, which was also known as the Great Los Angeles Air Raid. It's the name given by contemporary sources to the rumored enemy attack and subsequent anti-aircraft artillery barrage, which took place from late 24th, uh, February 24th to early February 25th in 1942 over Los Angeles, California. The incident occurred less than three months after the United States entered World War II as a result of the Pearl Harbor attack. And one day after the bombardment of a place called Elwood on February 23rd. Initially, the target of the aerial barrage was thought to be an attacking force from Japan. Of course, that's what they would think. But speaking at a press conference shortly afterwards, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox called the incident a false alarm. Newspapers of the time published a number of reports and speculations of a cover-up. But, of course, many pro-UFO folks cite this incident as proof that something was going on because it wasn't the Japanese, was it? It must be UFOs. 
Well, I mean, maybe we should name this right now to the prattle of Los Angeles. Um, this this little episode, which has been on Ancient Aliens, I believe, um, pretty sure, not uh, not 100%, pretty sure. Um, what you're looking at is the complicit nature of the United States military, not the United States of America military, the United States, the corporate military of this country, and the press, the supposed free press. As a matter of fact, to put a fine nail in it, uh, that, that lady who took uh, left John Stewart and has full frontal as her show now is now saying all this stuff about you know the free press while we still have one hint 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 big joke we haven't had a free press for my lifetime anyhow my point here is this the power and the longevity of whatever the hell occurred on this night basically came down to a couple grainy black and white photos that a six year old could have mocked up in a in a dark room. Basically, it shows spotlights focused on this kind of saucery shaped, overexposed, burnt out portion of the center of the film, which newspapers and other places ran. Um, and so it, it, it really underscores how powerful uh, very little information can be when thrown out through official sources. In my view, not a damn thing happened this night. In my view, this was made up out of whole cloth. And in my view, at the very best, it is hearsay. And if you're to take the official accounts, nothing at all happened. And yet we have the press running with, I think, maybe two or three images um, that really have fueled this thing into the modern day. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's really no significant evidence that anything physical was going on. And uh, let's not forget that uh, what's in Los Angeles, California? Right. Why, Hollywood, of course. The Dream Factory, of course. And this just underscores what we're talking about, the prattle of Los Angeles. Um, it is truly frightening to consider how easily um, large portions of our society are manipulated so easily. And in this case, with one or two black and white photos and a couple official stories weaving their kind of Tavistockian narrative where you never have a clear picture, in conflicting information is introduced, and this just goes on and on and on. But anyhow, back to you. Well, of course there was an attack going on Crow. Don't you know it was printed in the newspapers? Exactly. Orson Welles would have told you. What do you mean there's no war? It's in my newspaper. There's absolutely a war going on. <laughs> and speaking of wars, we're now going to touch on World War II and the phenomenon of the Foo Fighters. There were a lot of reports of mysterious aerial phenomena by the Allied aircraft pilots in both the European and Pacific theaters. It turns out later that both uh, German and Japanese pilots were also reporting, citing these interesting uh, whatever you want to call them. The term Foo Fighter was initially used to describe a certain type of UFO that was spotted, and it was a red ball of fire that appeared to chase the craft around through a variety of high-speed maneuvers. The term eventually stuck, and it came to be the term used for fast-moving, round-glowing objects following the aircraft. Various descriptions were fiery, glowing red, white or orange. Some described them as resembling Christmas tree lights and reported that they seemed to toy with the aircraft, making wild turns before simply vanishing. This will have great resemblance, of course, to the later descriptions of flying saucers and other such objects, making these impossible speed-up stops and right-angle turns and all that sort of thing. So, I mean... This is hearsay and nonsense at best. Um, for some reason, these magical Foo Fighters that are completely based on hearsay um, didn't come into the modern age past World War II. For some reason, Foo Fighters only showed up um, in certain events when there were fighters out there supposedly doing what they did in World War II. But let's do some very basic foundational work here. Let's take apart the word Foo. 
you see the word foo in code 666. F is the sixth letter, and if you break down in simple numerology, zero and zero, um, you get the 15th letter, which is one and five, so that's six. It's basically 666 encoded. And we all know, or should know, in this day and age, that words have meaning and that our entire language is encoded as if it were ancient Hebrew or supposed ancient Rome. Every letter has a numerical value. It's just the world we live in, whether you think there's any value there or not. But as I began to look at the Foo Fighters, I couldn't get away from the constant nagging little ping in my head saying, what about the modern band, the Foo Fighters? Jason and I have demonstrated what music and movies are here for in this world. They're here for social programming. It's what they do. Um, they're here for other things, but it's basically forms of social programming. So we have a band now called the Foo Fighters echoing this old idea, bringing it back to the forefront of thought. But what's special about the Foo Fighters? Well, what's special about the Foo Fighters is Dave Grohl, the new king of modern music and rock and roll. Um, you're looking at a man that came out of a very influential band that supposedly changed so much of music called Nirvana, where the lead singer, of course, blew his own head off and joined the 27 Club, hint, 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 with so many of the nonsense kind of psychological operation-based music stories that Jason and I have covered. But Dave Grohl was a drummer then, and then slowly over time became the front man, lead singer, lead guitar, and lo and behold, not too, too long ago, shows up at Wembley Stadium, and who shows up to be on his stage but Led Zeppelin, who plays for nobody and shows up on nobody's stage ever. Um, we're looking at a construct here, and we can tie the, the little, we can point the little arrow in any given direction to demonstrate that there is no basis to accept Foo Fighters from the encoding of the word, from the hearsay that it is, from the fact that for some reason Foo Fighters never showed up in the modern era um, to, the degree, to the degree that they were being uh, talked about supposedly in World War II, and then the tie over into the modern musical industry, which we have more than amply shown what that's all about. So what's your take, Jason, <laughs> to, uh -huh, to, well. walk, to walk up to the edge of the cliff and ask you if you want to jump? <laughs> but anyway, go, go ahead. Well, Dave Grohl... Uh, you know, I think he's a very interesting figure because he did indeed come from Nirvana, and Nirvana was one of the main bands of the grunge movement that wiped out the 80s, butt rock, hair tees, tight pants, everybody prancing around having a good time, to the dark, dreary, blah, blah, androgyny of the 90s. And, you know, he was he was the drummer for one of the biggest bands of that era, and then he goes on to have one of the biggest rock bands ever. I think that there's no doubt he must be an insider of some sort. Well, I, I, these 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 cultural iconic shifts that we have, so many of us probably still believe that there could be some long-haired, grungy kids that got lucky. That's not the way the music industry works. These people are insiders. They were put to, to do what they did. That is my point of view, and I make no apology. I've done enough episodes that have shown what the early roots of rock and roll were. I have done enough episodes that showed what the music industry is and who the players are and who they're related to, and there's no getting away from it, man. And that even sets aside the whole Kurt Cobain fear porn, violent nonsense, 27 Club echoed over and over again through Janis Joplin and... You know, Jimi Hendrix and the Doors lead singer who whose father was directly responsible for starting the Vietnamese War. Um, it goes on and on and on. Uh, we just need to grow up a little and look at these things critically as I've done here. Um, and that's my point of view, man. I make no apology. 
Yeah, and it's not that we're saying every single one of these people are insiders from the get-go. They find who they need, and then whatever project they need done gets done. So Dave Grohl may have just been, uh, you know, a kid from... Because he was in different bands that weren't successful, I I know, and uh, got into Nirvana late, actually, uh, shortly after... Excuse me, shortly before their mega success. So, you know, it's all suspect. They they probably started off as nobodies and uh, got inside the club, you know? Yeah, it's my contention that when we see cultural shifts of this magnitude, um, that there is a hidden hand behind them. I've covered so many provable aspects of this taking place. Um, and in the music industry alone, we basically showed what the roots of rock and roll are and were, where it came from, who was behind it. And you're never getting away from bloodlines in that story. You're just never getting away from bloodlines. Um, anyhow, back to you. Yeah, and Dave Grohl nowadays, of course, has his fingers in a lot of pies, and, and he's just like Mr. Rock and Roll of everything. He's, he's the, he's the king. man. <laughs> he's the king of rock and roll, man. He snaps his finger, and Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones show up on his stage. Um, you're the freaking king of rock and roll, um, basically. Yeah, that's, basically. That one's crazy. Yeah, um, anyhow. Yeah, so lots to consider there, ladies and gentlemen. Up next, we're going to touch on the first actual major media reporting of Flying Saucers. Uh, This is considered the modern era of UFO reporting, and it all centers around a man named Kenneth Arnold and his sighting on June 24th, 1947. He claims after seeing flashes of light outside his window while flying his Collair A-2 aircraft from Chehalis, Washington to Yakima, Washington, that he witnessed nine shiny, thin craft flying together. He compared their movement to saucers skipping on water, and their shape being saucer, disc, pipan, or half-moon-like. He later said that one craft differed from the saucer look by being a crescent shape. Ten days later, a United Airlines crew would also make a very similar claim that they cited the same things. So, here we are, Flying Saucers, 1947. All right. Well, let's just grab 1947 out of the gate as a starter because, you know, in in life, if you don't know where to start, grab a date. Start there. 1947 encodes 9-11. June 24 is 6 and 6. So we have an encoded 6-6-9-11. Of course, 6 mirrors 9. So who the hell actually knows what could be going on there? But it's very clearly um, a potentially significant date for these reasons. Not to mention um, that this is the very same year that the Roswell thing is going to go down on the 33rd parallel. In my view, what we're looking at with the Kenneth Arnold story, and by the way, um, I don't believe he is credited with creating the word flying saucers. I believe it is supposed that his description was then coined into the term flying saucers by someone in the media, if I remember correctly. But When you begin to break down this whole Kenneth Arnold thing and the year it happened and all this stuff going on, I mean, you're literally weeks away from the whole Roswell nonsense. And what I see here is the required foundational story, the details of a story that were going to be foundational being laid down. And in this case, it's seemingly making way for the Roswell nonsense to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I I had spoken with James the other day briefly, and he had said something about a possible connection between Jack Parsons and Kenneth Arnold. And I don't know if there is one, but it'd be something interesting to look into. Boy, if there is, he'd be the guy to see it. He's so analytical. He doesn't miss much. He he is. Yeah, he told, (laughs) you know, he he just emailed me and said he he asked, he said he asked my permission if he could go down um, the alchemy road based on the show we did covering the the mercurial alchemy. Um, And I said, look, man, that's out there for everyone. 
one, run with it. And of all people, I'm very interested to see what he said. But um, in that email, I pointed out, you know, I'm seeing it everywhere. As an example, the Silver Surfer is is Mercury. It's who he is. He's the herald of the god Galactus, who even has the little Mercury things on top of his little crown. Um, and of course, he's the color of Quicksilver. Um, again, we're seeing Mercury encoded. Uh, it goes on and on and on. But I don't want to track away too far. Uh, we were showing the foundational nonsense, in my view, that was required in June of 47, which can encode 9-11, that was required to get the details of the story laid down foundationally to start to weave the Roswell tale. Absolutely, because that's what's up next. The one that everyone has heard of, Roswell. The Roswell incident effectively began after the 4th of July holiday weekend in 1947 when a rancher named William Mac Brazel reported to the local sheriff, George Wilcox, that he might have recovered the remains of, quote-unquote, one of them flying saucers. Wilcox, according to various accounts, then contacted military authorities at nearby Roswell Army Airfield, where Major Jesse Marcel was assigned to investigate. Marcel and two counterintelligence corps agents, Sheridan Cavett and Lewis Rickett, drove out to the ranch where Brazel worked to examine and collect the wreckage. On July 8, 1947, the Public Information Office at Roswell AAF made the startling announcement that they had recovered the remains of a flying disc. However, by the next day, the excitement was over. Brigadier General Roger Ramey, who had ordered the wreckage sent to him for examination at Carswell Air Force Base, which was also known as Fort Worth, held a press conference with Major Marcel present and announced that all the hoopla had been over a mistaken weather balloon and nothing more. With Ramey's deflating announcement, the Roswell Flying Saucer story was effectively dead and would remain so for decades. Then in 1978... UFO researcher Stanton Friedman happened to meet Marcel. Because Marcel dredged up his recovered saucer story, and Friedman thought he had at last found a star witness who could blow open the U.S. government's alleged cover-up of crashed saucers and pickle aliens, the Roswell myth began anew, with Friedman as its most outspoken figurehead to this day. Man, we just, you know, if there was an Academy Award for nonsense, I think we should probably award it to Stanton Freeman if it's true that he single-handedly resurrected this nonsense, this nonsensical, never-to-be-resolved mystery from back in 47 that was revised in 78. Um, it goes on and on and on. As you were sitting there talking, I quickly took Brazel's name uh, to look for the meaning of it. It's related to strife. Uh, which is apropos to say the least. But where do the problems end with the story besides the fact that there's a million books, a new one written every year on it, and nothing is ever resolved, nothing is ever added to the storyline. And at the very foundational basis of this, we're being asked to believe that human beings cannot tell the difference between a weather balloon and a crashed supposed flying saucer. And that sets aside that Mac Brazel comes along and says, must be one of them flying saucers, a word that was coined scant weeks before this supposed incident happened. Um, This has nonsense written all over it, and you don't even really got to dig into the details to understand that this is social engineering of the highest order, and of course it occurred on the 33rd parallel of this country, which should tell everybody something. You can see how the buildup was going, too. You know, it's like we have things going on in the earlier 20th century, getting the ideas and notions of the spacecraft and the aliens coming here and all that. You get the Kenneth Arnold thing saying he's seen flying saucers. And then a very short time later, all of a sudden, 
one crashes <laughs> and then there's a massive government uh, cover up going on. So, you know, you can see all this and how it was set up even for later usage. Yeah, well, it's crazy to even think about logically because here's a story that never gets resolved. Nothing new is ever added. They're even making shows now where they're going to test how the stupid weather balloon crashed um, further insinuating into your mind that a human being can't tell the difference between a weather balloon and other things, even making up stories about dummies hanging from them and all this other nonsense. But look at it this way. In the modern era, we're still having shows that constantly harp on Roswell as foundational, um, the story of how we got the word flying saucers, the bent waters nonsense about the nuclear base there where the UFOs were coming to invade, uh, all this nonsense. They keep going back to these same stories that never resolve. If you were truly wanting to show the people something new and amazing, would you not go to YouTube and seek out people like, well, me, to be honest, who have shot some pretty spectacular things that aren't easily explained. And to put a fine point on it, Prometheus, the, the, the production company we talked about earlier, Lucifer Encoded, um, contacted me wanting some of my moon footage. And I thought, oh, well, they're probably going to want some of the UFOs, legitimate UFOs. In other words, objects I shot that I cannot identify. Um, that's not what they were after. They were after a piece of footage that I shot in full spectrum that shows flashes coming off the moon. And I thought that was pretty interesting. My point here is this. Why do they keep going back to these tired old stories that never add anything to the narrative, that never resolve when we have a whole world of video out there that is many times as interesting, many times as mysterious? You see where I'm going here? It's, it's just this whole Roswell thing and the people who got associated with it, they should be ashamed, man. That's, that's all I can say about it. Yeah, and of course, this starts the whole flying saucer craze that uh, now starts going on through Hollywood because we have all these ridiculous amounts of movies being made involving aliens and, and flying saucer spaceships. And um, most of them are B-flicks, but you do get some really, really good ones. And uh, that's the next point I want to make is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Well, uh, before you jump into The Day the Earth Stood Still, I, I want to mention one more thing about Roswell. My wife and I coming back from the East Coast at one point took a diversion um, to go through Clovis and then through Roswell. It is a really bizarre little town because it is completely foundationally built on this supposed Roswell episode where little gray aliens crashed somewhere near there. It's actually not that near to Roswell, by the way. But um, – we went into the UFO museum, and it is just such a kitschy kind of strange vibe to the whole thing. And I just wanted to add that in there. Um, the whole thing has no ring of truth or solid foundation that you can rely on in any way. Um, but anyhow, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. You're going into the day the earth stood still in the, the furthering of the Hollywood dream factory. Oh, yeah. You can see how they're just building up and building up this this uh, imagery in, in the Western mind. So The Day the Earth Stood Still is one of the biggest and most well done of the 1950s flying saucer movies. Also complete with an alien who looks perfectly human and with a giant robot named Gort. It tells the story of how a peaceful alien comes to Earth to offer peace with the rest of the intelligent species out there. Klaatu is his name, and he emerges from the saucer at the end of the film after all the drama, and he addresses the assembled scientists and government politicians and all that, informing them that he represents an interplanetary organization that created a police force of invincible robots like Gort to patrol the planets in spaceships like this one and preserve the peace by automatically annihilating any aggressors. In matters of aggression, we have given them absolute power over us. 
This power cannot be revoked. Klaatu concludes with, It is no concern of ours how you run your own planet, but if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace, or pursue your present course and face obliteration. Klaatu and Gort re-enter the spaceship and depart. So it's almost like, you know, the fear porn being put between a rock and a hard place. If you really break down, you know, what's going on here with with the choices humanity has given. First of all, our last episode, we break down the hoax that is nuclear weapons. So if you consider any average person that wanted to be peaceful um, in mass, how much power does the average person have to be peaceful when we have these governments and other entities that constantly push these fake events and fear porn? So it's almost kind of you're put in a possible situation here, and it's almost certainly written into the mental aspects of what's intended to be done here. But we're looking at the 50s here. They have put some money behind an actual production value, uh, sci-fi, alien-esque thing that's not just meant for kids on the weekend, and adults are meant to see it. And what's the name of the other movie we always talk about? I can never remember, Jason. Forbidden Planet. So in Forbidden Planet, I think that is the first big-budget sci-fi. I think Disney Disney may have to do with that. I don't remember for sure. But it's a big budget that is going to insert now the idea in a – Pretty fantastic movie, actually. What a flying saucer is, what it looks like in space, what it looks like when it comes up on another planet, what it looks like when it lands on that planet. And see, we have another aspect of that same idea being done in the early 50s with the day the Earth stood still. So you can see the Dream Factory stepping in to stand on the foundational nonsense that is Roswell, the foundational nonsense that is the flying saucer's pilot whatever his name is, Arnold, and further it down the road. But not only can you see this, if you logically break it down, it occurs over and over and over again. It's almost like the Apollo landing on the moon lie. It is a lie that must be maintained till the end of time, one would imagine. Um, you're not. It, it's no different what we're looking at here, in my view. So there you go. Yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, the notion of this kind of alien craft is the predominance throughout all the 1950s. You don't see things uh, really changing until you get into the 60s and then you start getting a little bit more realism. But what's interesting is you have all the crazy, like the the 1950s movies were extremely campy, right? Most of them. Fa- uh, actually, Forbidden Planet, uh, Fantastic Planet or whatever it was. They kind of did an early almost Star Trek theme where they're on a mission of exploration and they find a planet where there's a professor doing archaeology of ancient aliens in, in fact uh if that's actually the storyline yeah and you you go out of kind of the, the crazy campiness of the 50s flying saucer stuff and you get into the 60s where lost in space kind of was still campy but a little more modern because we're getting into the nasa age now and then you have star trek you know which is kind of setting the standard for what this is what space is like and how space travel will be uh, I always thought it was ironic that the the Enterprise is still a saucer with just extra parts. I, I definitely took notice <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah, right. And, 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 you know, it's funny you just mentioned 1966. If I had to venture a guess, I would say the two kind of Hollywood dream factory things that were pushed at us that had the biggest impact on the world psyche would be 1966 – 
Star Trek, the original, and then again in 77 with Star Wars. But what I noticed as you were going through it, I was breaking down end dates. I often leave the uh, the century marker off a date because I notice they encode probably just the end. It's a bit like saying what day is it, um, and, and you don't say the year. You just say the date because it's implied. Um, but so many of them were breaking down to six. As we got into Roswell, I showed you the sixes. Here we have 66 for Star Wars. Then we get up into 77, which is Ion Zion, the mind weapons, of course, for Star Wars. But think about what, as a as a race of human beings here, we must, our, what our ideas may have been of space before things like Star Trek came along, before things like Star Wars came along. And it really, really underscores the importance of the foundational nonsense we're pointing out here because it's what they're going to stand on but it really shows the power of the dream factory and then the official outlets that will back whatever the dream factory is pushing out as a matter of fact someone just told me that may 4th is now star wars day because may the 4th be with you and i am told (laughs) that comes directly from big bang so here we have if it's correct if any of that is correct um i'm I'm not sure that it's correct but it makes sense to me um if it is true that big bang came up may the 4th be with you for one of their star wars nights and that has now morphed into a day that's going to be celebrated by just the public i mean it's crazy and it shows the power of the dream factory Oh, yeah, absolutely. And before we leave the whole 1950s Flying Saucer storyline, there's another very significant movie with um, the H.G. Wells theme again, and that's the the full movie of, of War of the Worlds. And I remember as a child, I loved that movie, and that also had a very good budget and looks really good for the time. And uh, what is this reinforcing again? Uh, alien invasion, you know, Martians are coming to get us, and they're wiping out the world. And we even see a little alien in it, so... It's just more reinforcement of this same concept, you know? You know, Mars is a funny thing for the god of war. Everyone should keep in mind Um, the red planet, the color of blood, we are told, is how it's got its name to be the god of war. Um, We can see the narrative even in observational, at at the observatory level, observational people making comments and supposed science around Mars. In Flagstaff, I went to see the 27-inch, I think it's 27-inch scope, uh, where Percival Lowell was studying Mars. At the time, and he was not alone in this, didn't start it either. Someone else in Europe started it. They were describing all these canals, supposed canals that had to have been made by Martians because there's, you know, how else could these canals be here? They're moving water around this red planet. This went on and on, and it was in the public consciousness, and it was a big deal up until Percival Lowell died. Then when Percival Lowell died, that narrative began to change. Now when you look with modern scopes that are pretty damn impressive, there's no canals. You don't see any canals. Um, The whole idea of canals has been defamed when a guy with a pretty damn big scope sat there for something like 10 years drawing canals. You have to imagine that he must have been seeing something because other people were doing similar things. But here's the rub. You can go to Google Mars right now and find a 1960s era layover for the planet Mars projection in Google Mars that shows the, uh, the canals. And supposedly, 
basically the story we're told on how that came to be was Mariner Viking, one of the early ones, I forget which one, was supposedly headed off to the planet, and these were the maps they were going to use. I mean, you can see the narrative is nonsense. Not only do, do these early foundational ideas just morph away and then get defamed and turn into something else, um, they're supported the whole time by what Hollywood is doing. Uh, it never ends, and anyone willing to take the time to look at these foundational truths we're pointing out can really begin to see the hand that's being hidden. Yeah, absolutely. Mars, I don't know, man, Mars seems to be um, recycled a lot in with all of these, uh, with the symbolism, movies, just everything. There's just something about Mars and it's just, it's constantly used. Yeah, because there is so much foundational material out there in the public consciousness. And I'll tell you what, man, Mars is the god of war, but not in the way you're thinking. It is a war on your mind. And Matt Nomad, I mean Matt Damon right now is helping push this nonsense further. You know, his movie comes out on a Friday when that Monday NASA announced, oh, guess what, guys, there's water on Mars. You can see the complicity of all this nonsense. Um, you just have to switch the context with which you're viewing it and challenge it. Try to poke holes in it. Try to find inconsistencies with it. Don't look at just the epicenter of the information you're being handed. Look around it. Look at the roots of where it came from. Look at the foundation it is standing on. And again, to beat that tired horse, I cannot tell you what beings may possibly be alive in this construct with which we exist. I don't know if there's a universe. I don't accept the solar system model, the orbital models, the description of space. I don't accept any of it, but I can't tell you if there are other living beings. But what I can absolutely wholeheartedly without retraction tell you is the things we have covered here are social engineering. And while in the first hour we don't have a hell of a lot of time to draw all the lines we'd like to, um, I would point anyone to the Tavistock Institute and do a little research where they actually claim responsibility for the modern alien agenda. Does that mean there's nothing more out there to be known? No, it doesn't. But it does mean, if you do your homework, that really these, so many of these constructs of what a gray alien is, by the way, invented by H.G. Wells, a sci-fi writer, writer. What is a, a reptilian? Guess who invented that? Well, the guy who wrote Conan the Barbarian invented reptilian aliens. And how many shows have Jason and I pointed out the complicity of sci-fi writers in the modern era, even inventing satellites and nukes for crying out loud? Um, what can you add, Jason? Yeah, since we're at, at the top of the hour here, I want to I point out the fact that the way we did this by establishing a timeline, which is what we always do to, to keep things objective you know it's it the whole idea here is that we're you can see how things are built from one year to the next and you can look at individual ufo alien type things and be like wow that's cool that's interesting that that's i wonder if that really happened when you look at it the way we just did it where we built it up and deconstructed everything you can see that there's a very 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 strong possibility that these things are pretty much rubbish they're just it's absolute fabrication and um when we get into hour two, we're going to show you and we're going to uh, just how this all breaks down. And the, a lot of the key players, we're going to talk about specific people who were very much involved with com continuing this narrative and really, really making these things a reality in Western minds. Um, what, one of the big names I'm going to throw out there just to hopefully hook everybody is Art Bell, because my goodness, what, was he involved? 
Yeah, what about Richard C. Hoagland? We're going to cover him, too. And he's, uh, you know, the only way I know him is because he badmouthed me in a Newsweek article that had interviewed me. Um, that was the only way that I'd ever heard of him, um, at which point one of his producers wanted to do an interview. We cover this. And I told the the interviewer, sure, that would be an interesting interview because here's the facts. If anything, any of my research is correct, everything Richard C. Hoagland has done is nonsense. But by the same token, if anything Richard C. Hoagland has done is correct, then all my work is nonsense. And I said that would be an interesting show. We do cover that in the second hour. We also get into the Brookings Institute uh, report, uh, and that's very interesting, of course, because it shows up in the movie 2001. Arthur C. Clarke's big opus on space um, that that starts to seek to encode how humans got here and the black cube and Saturn and all the things that were done with that movie. Another massive budget space sci-fi flick um, that I think either won an Academy Award or was up for one. I don't remember which. Um, and, and here's just a tidbit while we're on it. 2001, when it was originally aired, at the end credits had endless credits to NASA, uh, military organizations, all these other places. For some reason, those credits no longer exist in that movie. Again, you can see the morphing, the changing, the hiding of the narrative. And so many people have made a very damn convincing claim that what the movie 2001 was, among other things, was getting the technology in place to fake the footage they needed to fake the, the Apollo moonshots. Um, it goes on and on. But Jason, do you want to add anything before we wrap up the first hour? I think we nailed it home. I, I want everyone to, to remember that we weren't attacking folks on UFO sightings like anything unusual they may have seen. Because as we said at the beginning, we've all actually had similar experiences. What this is about is deconstructing the social engineering concepts behind this and why we may be seeing the manipulation in Western society, especially for spaceships and aliens and all that sort of thing. So hopefully you'll join us for hour two and you'll really see some very specifics about a lot of the key figures involved. It's a good point. You know, anyone can go to my YouTube channel and see the endless line of just su such strange things that I filmed, which qualify as UFOs. We don't know what they are. But had I shot those things and immediately said, you know what, there's a gray alien in that, I really would have been missing the boat because my mind would have shut off and I wouldn't have done the research that I followed on with to begin to show that these things were so much more close to, to my point of view than was being assumed. It was assumed they were in what is called outer space. Um, that's not the case. Um, and while there are some that we could argue about a little bit, the vast majority were broken down by an optical expert where we took the value of a pixel at so many hundreds of miles and began to demonstrate how big these things would be. Um, and before I shut down the first hour, um, I will also point out there's a new show. Uh, I don't know what channel it's on. Um, that has the whole alien construct in it once again, but it's very telling. Uh, it's a comedy. Uh, some of the players came from The Daily Show, I believe. Um, and what are the three alien types that they're now using in this show? Well, of course, the Nordics, the Greys, and the Reptilians. Well, why? Well, I'll tell you why, because that's what's been inserted into the public consciousness, and every writer for that show is aware of what's being talked about on YouTube. Um, that's why. But anyhow, in the second hours, we're going to cover the Brookings Report, the whole Betty Barney Hill thing, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We're going to get into Stanton Friedman in a lot more detail. Of course, Dr. Richard Greer, um, Richard C. Hoagland, Billy Meyer, what a fraud, Bob Lazar, same, same, Bill Cooper, uh, Whitley Stryber, Art Bell, 
the art of the Baal, 33rd degree Mason there, Bud Hopkins, the UFO cover-up lies, and of course, how could we forget the alien autopsy film, which fooled so many people in the 90s, yet in the modern age, I would imagine 90-some percent of people who see that just laugh, but there it is, man. Um, I'm going to bring this to a close, Jason. Any last word before I do so? Man, wait till you guys see the fraud. That's that's all I'm going to say. Hopefully, hopefully we'll see you there. Yeah, man. Uh, the second hour is going to be po- posted on Crow777Radio.com on the new website. Um, it's posted there for members. Hope to see you over there. And there it is, man. Crow 777 Radio Podcast, episode 54, the first hour uh, covering UFOs, aliens, and, and things like that. So there it is, man. Cheers. Cheers.